The book of Revelation features three cycles of sevenfold judgments. The first cycle begins with the seven seals, and then we go to the seven trumpets. And finally, in this chapter, in Revelation 16, we're going to look at the bowls of wrath, seven bowls of wrath. And the relationship between these sevenfold judgments is parallel and expansion. These judgments parallel one another, but they also expand and deepen the judgment as we lurch further to the final judgment that God's going to bring upon Jerusalem when he destroys the temple in accordance with Jesus's own prophecies in Matthew 23 in the Olivet Discourse. If you think about if you go on a beach, you look at the waves, the waves will go up shore and then they'll recede and then they'll come back up again and go further up shore and then recede. And then a third time they'll come even further up shore and then recede again. That's the way that these sevenfold judgments work. These three expand upon one another. And in this final series, in these bowls of wrath, we're going to see the book of Revelation start to reach its pinnacle, its climax, as judgment increases, as the stakes get higher and we get closer to God's final act of judgment. We often think of God as trigger happy, maybe ready to inflict wrath at the slightest offense. But if we read scripture carefully, and if we understand these all judgments the way they ought to be understood, we actually see a God who's exceedingly patient. The seals, trumpets, and bowls, they're warnings to those who war against them that there's still time to repent, that salvation is still available to them. But what we're going to see in the bowl wraths is that the more intense the judgment gets, the more stern the warnings become, the more hard-hearted people are in response. And we kind of see that the, the tragedy of sin is how it blinds us to the gracious warnings of God. But the message is clear. Turn from your sin to God before it's too late, before God's vengeance comes. There is always hope, but the time is short. This is Understanding Revelation. Revelation 16 unveils seven bowls of God's wrath that's poured out on the land of Israel. Jerusalem crucified Christ and killed his saints, but now the blood of the martyrs will fall upon her head in destruction. But before her final destruction, there are a series of mini-judgments, mini-plagues, things that are prefiguring the final fall of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans in 70 AD. So we're going to look at these first three bowls, bowls 1 through 3 in Revelation chapter 16, the first six verses. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The bowls bring to completion the partial judgment of the trumpets, and they echo the plagues upon Egypt during the Exodus. So if we have the Exodus and the trumpets in the background, it's going to shed light on the meaning of these bowls. The bowls are the final round of judgment that will ultimately culminate in Jerusalem's destruction and the temple being destroyed. It is also the preamble to another exodus of God's people from out of the doomed city of Babylon. And we're going to see that in Revelation chapter 8. Let's look at these bowls. 
The first bull causes harmful and painful sores upon people who bear the mark of the beast and worship its image. The first bull intensifies the first trumpet judgment by affecting all of the earth rather than just a third of the vegetation and trees. And it also echoes the sixth plague of boils upon Egypt. The sixth plague fell upon both man and beast in Egypt, and now it falls upon men who worship the beast in Jerusalem. Now, we mentioned in a prior episode that the mark of the beast symbolizes the phylacteries, which were small boxes containing portions of scripture strapped to the foreheads of Jewish men during worship. We also connected the image of the beast with the temple, now corrupt because of its priesthood. Sores mark a man out as unclean and unfit for worship, according to Leviticus chapter 13. So you can see the irony here. The very things that the Jews believe make them clean, wearing these phylacteries and worshiping at the temple, are actually the things that make them unclean and cut off from God's true temple in Christ. So the boils and the, and the sores are meant to make them unclean. It's, it's really a visual representation of their true status. They think that they're clean because they're going to the temple, that they have the scripture on their heads, but they've rejected Christ. And it doesn't matter how externally clean they are, they don't have an actual clean heart. They're unfit to enter the true temple of Christ. The second bowl turns the sea into blood like a corpse. This echoes the second trumpet. In the second trumpet, there's a burning mountain, which represents Israel, Mount Sinai, crashing into the sea of the Gentiles. Remember, the sea represents the Gentiles and the nations. And there's a conflict. A third of the sea creatures die, the ships are destroyed, and some blood enters into the waters. But here we see in the second bowl, the Israel-Gentile or Israel-Rome conflict intensifies. Now the entire sea is saturated with blood. The bloodshed has ratcheted up to another level. I think this also includes the blood of the martyrs, the 144,000 that are slaughtered underneath Nero. So bloodshed is increasing as we near the final judgment in 70 AD. I also think that the blood represents the casualties, the, the bloodshed that happened during the Jewish revolt against Rome in 66 to 70 AD. So this is actually the uh, rebellion that, that Israel launched against Rome that actually prompts Rome to come and destroy their temple. So I think, again, we're seeing the Jew-Gentile, Christian-Jew-Gentile conflict, and the bloodshed is culminating as more martyrs are being sacrificed and as the tensions between Rome and Israel intensify as well. The third bowl. The third bowl turns the rivers and springs of water into blood, which causes the angel to praise God's justice for avenging the blood of the saints upon their persecutors. The parallel here is with the third trumpet, in which a star called Wormwood makes a third of the rivers and springs bitter. Now, rivers and springs symbolize the source of life, but wormwood, which means bitter, poisons the water with false teaching. And now all the rivers are poisoned with false teaching, but they're also filled with blood. Remember, God made the Nile red with the blood of slaughtered infants, and here the waters turn red with the blood of the saints. False teaching, as it percolates throughout the church and percolates throughout Jerusalem in the first century, incites persecution against Christians, and that floods the waters with blood, painting Jerusalem as a new Egypt. Jerusalem is acting like their oppressors back in the time of Moses. And now they must drink the blood that they wanted to be on them in judgment. Remember, when the Jews called for the crucifixion of Christ, they said, let his blood be on us and on our children. And, and this is what is being fulfilled here. God's vengeance is poetic and just, but God's judgment is not over. Let's look at bowls four to six. This is chapter 16, verses seven through 16. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. 
The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So the fourth bowl pours into the sun and inflames it to such a degree that it scorches people with fierce heat, causing them to curse the name of God, but they do not repent. Now in trumpet four, we see that a third of the sun, moon, and stars are struck with a plague, causing them to dim. Now heavenly bodies represent political powers. So this references the political upheaval that characterized the years leading up to 70 AD. That's what the trumpet judgment represented. But now the reverse has happened. God is inflaming the sun, which I think is a symbol for Rome, and he's inflaming it against the people of the land, the Jews. The Jews are, are going to feel the fierce heat of the siege and destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Political upheaval hits a fever pitch as Rome turns on Israel, that the alliance between the beast and the false prophet is going to be frayed, and God is behind it all. He used pagan nations to judge Israel in the past, and he's doing so again. But this display of wrath only hardens the heart of unfaithful Israel. Instead of repentance, they curse the name of God and harden their Pharaoh-like hearts. Now, the fifth bowl targets the throne of the beast and plunges it into darkness. Darkness echoes the ninth plague on Egypt, but it also echoes the fifth trumpet. And the fifth trumpet, Abaddon, this demonic satanic figure, emerges from a dark bottomless pit with a demonic army of locusts. So we see Satan assembling his army, and we see also in uh, other parts of Revelation, Revelation chapter 13, that Satan, the dragon, empowers the beast, which is Rome, to do his bidding. But here, God judges the throne of the beast with darkness. In other words, Satan amasses his army, he sends Rome into a demonic frenzy, but then God is going to overrule him. He's going to bring the kingdom and the, the empire of Rome into darkness. After Emperor Nero, who was a violent persecutor of Christians, uh, committed suicide in 69 AD, Rome fell into a state of disarray. Four emperors followed in rapid succession. There was Galba, who was killed quickly by Otto, who took the throne. And then Otto committed suicide and was succeeded by Vitellus, who lost his throne to Vespasian. And Vespasian was the Roman emperor who ends up destroying Jerusalem. So you've got multiple emperors in a very short span of time, and it's causing a lot of instability. And people wondering, has Rome been thrown into darkness? And you see God's sovereignty over history. He actually is the architect behind this social upheaval, bringing darkness onto the beastly throne. People think that this beast is so powerful, but God is sovereign and he's causing all kinds of political disruption and upheaval. But this darkness of political conflict does not cause people to repent. In fact, people double down once again, they even curse God. So God not only judges Israel with a pagan nation, but he also judges the pagan nation for attacking Israel. It's kind of an interesting interplay here. So the sixth plague comes on the heels of that. What we see on the sixth bowl, the sixth plague, is uh, it's poured into the Euphrates River and dries it up to prepare a path for the Eastern kings. So again, we see an unholy trinity. 
right? We see the, the dragon, which is Satan. He gives authority to the beast, which is a false son. And he has a false prophet who entices the kings of the earth to go to war against God's people and to worship the false son of the beast. So there's, again, an unholy trinity. And what we see is the assembling of, a, of, of an army. Uh, Peter Lightheart suggests that the eastern kings represent God's army. And the reason for this is because the sixth bowl parallels the sixth trumpet. And in the sixth trumpet, in a prior episode, we established that it's these four angels bound by the Euphrates. They're leading a heavenly army. They're leading a symbolic representation of the church. And they're going to go against the locust army that comes out from the bottomless pit in the fifth trumpet. So there's an assembling of the battle. The unholy trinity is gathering together their dark army to go up against the forces of the church, which I think is represented by the kings of the east. The unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they spew unclean spirits like frogs, which echoes the second plague on Egypt. The fact that these frogs emerge from the mouths of the dragon, beast, and false prophet leads some commentators to interpret these evil spirits as false teaching and false prophecy. Two things which characterize the chaos that leads up to the destruction of the temple in Jesus' Olivet Discourse. Right? He talks about false Christs and false prophecies and, and all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and things like that. They're going to precede uh, the destruction of the temple. So if this is true, then we see two armies, the kings of the world, assembling against God and his kings of the east, his uh, heavenly army, at a place called Armageddon, or literally the mountain at Megiddo. Now, the odd thing is that Megiddo does not have a mountain, which means this probably refers not to a literal place, but a kind of place, a Megiddo-like place. If we look at the references to Megiddo in the Bible, we see that this is where King Josiah died in battle against the Egyptians. Megiddo was Judah's Waterloo. It was a defining defeat that forever changed the course of the nation of Israel. Here, the unholy trinity meets their own Waterloo slash Megiddo. Their armies gather, but it's important to note that there's no battle yet. They're just assembling. Followers of Christ must stay alert, for Christ will come like a thief and destroy Jerusalem. And we too must be alert for Christ's second coming. This has a future referent as well. We don't know when the Lord will return in judgment. But God is gathering his army, and Satan is gathering his forces to rail against his army. And there's this tension there. There's this battle that's going to happen. This leads us to bowl number seven, verses 17 to 21. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plagues of the hail, because the plague was so severe. So the seventh bowl pours out into the air with its final judgment. The bowls destroy the old creation order. The first bowl attacks the earth, the second attacks the sea, the third the rivers and the springs, the fourth the sun, the fifth darkens the world, and the sixth dries up the waters, and the seventh plague gets everything in between, the very air itself. This is describing Jerusalem's fall. This is the end of the old covenant order. There's going to be no more priesthood, no more sacrifices, no more temple. God acts and works within history. The prophet Ezekiel spoke of Jerusalem being judged in thirds, and that comes to pass here in Revelation 16. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, records that 
the Jews in Jerusalem, when they were being sieged by the Romans, split up into three different factions that fought against each other. So there was internal chaos. And this destabilizes Jerusalem and helps it fall even quicker. John records also that the nations are falling as well. And I think this refers to the instability that Rome itself experiences. Destruction of Jerusalem causes some instability within the great empire, and the nations within it face their own political instability. In the midst of this, God remembers Babylon the Great, this corrupt city, and that actually symbolizes Jerusalem. In Revelation 11, verse 8, Jerusalem, the city that killed Christ, is spoken of as a spiritual Sodom in Egypt. And here, Jerusalem is a spiritual Babylon. They are now enemies of God because of their adultery, because they've rejected Christ, because of their spiritual infidelity. Jerusalem, the holy city, has become unclean, as if it were a pagan city, as if it were Babylon. Their dragon-beast alliance has corrupted them. Uh, The islands and mountains flee as hailstones from heaven fall on the people. Again, we read Josephus. He notes the siege of Jerusalem and how many Jews described the catapults that were shooting Roman rocks to destroy the city looked like giant white stones of hail. And they actually weighed about 75 to 100 pounds. So I think there's actually a literal fulfillment here that the hailstones are actually the catapults, the the rocks that are being chucked at Jerusalem to destroy it. Uh, Jerusalem curses God for the severity of the judgment. And Jerusalem, who is now Babylon, drinks the cup of God's wrath for killing Christ and persecuting his people. God's wrath comes full force. But just as in the Exodus, a new people once oppressed are liberated. God is liberating his church. And also, we're going to see that God gives one more chance for people to flee from the city. One more chance for people to convert. That this climactic destruction in history in 70 AD is going to reverberate into history. That God, again, works within history, not just in our hearts. And he's going to form a new Jerusalem out of the rubble of the old. So again, these seven bowl judgments, they echo the plagues on Egypt. They also echo the trumpet judgments, but they also further those judgments. And now the twist is that Jerusalem has become Egypt. Jerusalem has become Babylon. Jerusalem will now face the plagues of God. But out of that Jerusalem, that old Jerusalem that's corrupt, will emerge a shining new Jerusalem, which we will see at the end of the day.